Hello everyone and welcome back to the Overreacting Podcast. Today we are delving into IUDs. I have to say from talking to friends uh, with all of us navigating the absolute maze that is the world of contraception, IUDs definitely seem to be becoming one of the most popular options. A number of my friends have said that the IUD has been their favourite contraceptive, notwithstanding some difficulties along the way for sure. So why are they so great? Today we start pretty much at the beginning. What is an IUD? How do they work? What does it mean to have a hostile uterus? We also talk a little bit about the history of IUDs, the design flaws in the early models and the terrible consequences of this. Uh, these kind of examples definitely raise some questions about duty of care when it comes to women's health, and Chris raises some really insightful points about the, well, fairly categorical inconsistencies and the definition of personal autonomy when it comes to general health versus reproductive health. Then we get into Chris's personal journey over the last year with her own IUD. Oh man, uh, that that is a story. <laughs> In, in classic Chris and Heather fashion, uh, we chatted way longer than planned. So today's episode focuses on essentially the function, history, politicization and social impact of the device, as well as Chris's personal experience. In the next episode, we're going to collate and bring you a whole bunch of stories from our friends about their own IUD experiences. So stay tuned for this. Apologies also for the bit of extended summer break. I'm sure you'll understand when you hear more about the summer that's been in this episode. Enjoy. Calm, calm down, dear. Calm down. Calm down. Listen. Listen to the doctor. Calm down and listen to the doctor. It takes courage and strength to be interfered. No, our motto is when they go low, we go high. Oh, hello, everybody. Oh, my God, we're recording. We're back. Chris, you sounded like you had a very not fun summer. <laughs> yeah, we had Heather and I took a little impromptu summer hiatus, um, mainly because I was wrong in thinking that I could record podcast episodes while studying for the bar exam. <laughs> it was really, in hindsight, saying that out loud, like, past me was such an idiot for thinking that was going to go okay. Um, for thinking I'd like, I'd have time. It was, um, yeah, so I was taking the bar, studying for and taking the bar so I can go to court in the state of New York. I went through that whole, whole process, which is about 10 weeks of studying, 14 different areas of law, many of which you don't actually have to learn in law school. Gross. And then you take this two day, in New York anyway, it's two day exam. That's pretty soul crushing. And then you wait until December to find out if you've passed. Nice. So that's where I've been. You know how you can get uh, sympathetic pregnancies when the partner experiences yeah. pregnancy symptoms and labor yeah. feelings? I feel like I have sympathetic bar exam stress watching you go through that. I do. I actually feel like I'm so sorry I put you through that. <laughs> that is perfectly okay. Perfectly okay. Um, but I think it's a good reminder that when you have such an intense working period, the last thing you want on top of that is any, any form of menstrual pain, uterine pain, pelvic pain, etc. This yeah. brings us 
to our discussion today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. IUDs, speaking of things that have caused you pain. We can definitely, yeah, it'll circle back because the IUD is actually a, uh, it's a returning character in my summer bar prep saga mm-hmm. anyway. Did you name the IUD? Uh, I didn't name the IUD. I should have. It should get a credit. Mm. <laughs> it should get a credit line. I didn't. I just named the cyst and then I felt like I shouldn't get attached to these things that I was trying to take out of me, so... I didn't I didn't name this one. But um yeah, we should why don't we do a bit of yeah. a backdrop cuz I actually didn't know what an IUD was probably until college and I didn't really know anything about how they worked until I started researching them with the plan of getting one. Um and it's actually funny this is such a and we really should do an episode on sex ed mm-hmm. because it was funny when I went to get one I Again, I, I was a very steep learning curve in real time about them. And then when I went to tell my boyfriend about them, thinking I'd have to explain quite a lot, he was like, oh, yeah, are you getting like a copper one or a hormonal one? And I was like, you know what this is? And he was like, oh, yeah, I had to make a model of one out of toothpicks for my ninth grade health class. Nice. And I was like, my high, ninth grade health class was like abstinence. And that was it. <laughs> like I wasn't informed of any kind of contraception at all by ninth strikes grade health. Again. Puritanical New Hampshire strikes again. Yeah. She's consistent. What can we mm-hmm. say? But, uh, but yeah, so I was like, wait, you know what this is? And that just seemed so unfair that it, I learned about them a decade later and I am the one with a uterus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we do a dive into what the heck, what the heck and Bob and IUD is? I guess the just to give a very simple explanation, as the names probably allude to, copper IUD has a copper coil wrapped around it, which is why it's also often colloquially referred to as the coil. That's right, isn't it? That's why it's called mm-hmm. the coil? Mm, I think, think so. so. We actually don't call it the coil, but that's from what I've read about the coil from British yeah, publications. Yeah, maybe the coil that's is my assumption. Technology. Yeah. Yeah, because we don't call it that, but I think that mm-hmm. is why. Yeah. Oh, and also I guess IUD stands mm-hmm. for intrauterine device. Good point. So... Literally, it's it's a device that goes inside, enter inside uterus. your uterus, and just hangs out there for anywhere from I want to say five to yeah. ten years, depending on the type you get. So, like Heather said, there's the copper one, which is non-hormonal; it's hormone-free. So, for all of us that were cringing at the hormone stats from the pill episode, this is a non-hormonal option for contraception. Yeah. We don't actually; I don't think science doesn't really know why exactly the copper deters sperm but it they just know it does they've identified it yeah as an effective spermicide i must admit i quite love that term spermicide i love that (laughs) so it releases copper ions that then make the environment in the uterus very hostile to sperm so basically the sperm can't really survive that was my favorite fact Mm. about iud's is that it makes your uterus hostile to sperm. Yeah, terminology is quite fun. I love, I love that mm. language. And the fact that that's language the scientific community went with just makes me happy as heck. <laughs> um, hostile to sperm. Yeah. Fuck yeah. But, um, oh, that's cool. Because I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that. But um, I just remember talking to a friend when she got one. And at that time, or at least her doctor was like, yeah, we're not positive why sperm don't like this. We just know that they mm. don't. Yep. <laughs> and she was like, okay. Yep. And then there's the hormonal one, which has a variety of options. There are, I think, four main hormonal uh, IUD devices. So there's the Marina, which is, I think, the oldest mm-hmm. and most used. Uh, it's the one with the most data. 
Uh, and then there's the Kylena, which is very similar. I'm actually pretty sure that they made the Kylena because it was it was some timing with like patents and it came very similar to the Marina. They weren't, I don't know if they weren't sure it was going to get renewed or whatever it was, but uh, it's almost the same. It just has a slightly different hormone level. And then there's the Skyla, which is, again, very similar, but just a lower hormone dose. So that's the one that, like, if you're, if you don't want to do the copper IUD, because it has its own downsides, which we'll get to, but you don't want the heavier hormone dose that the Mirena comes with, then the Skyla has, has the least mm. hormone of all of them. So it's, those are your four. You have the copper and then those three hormonal-based options. Yeah. At least in the States cool. is how that, uh, yeah. how that goes. And it seems like the main sort of cost-benefit analysis for people choosing between the hormonal and the copper one is that, well, the hormonal one will still come with, to some degree, the side effects that you get with any form of hormonal contraception. Although it is, because the hormones are a lot more local, uh, it's considered to be far less severe. But the issue that comes with the copper alternative is that it makes your um, periods a lot heavier and can increase the degree of pain of period cramping on with the hormonal one one of the other benefits is it can depends I think it varies a lot person by person um but for quite a few women it will really lighten your periods or you can lose your period altogether which big yay I actually I really liked the IUD for all of it and we'll get to the the turmoils of it but I was one of the women who lost her period completely uh after a few months and actually all of my friends that have one that is also true of so I think that that stat breakdown is along the line of whether or not whether it's you've had a baby or how old you are. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what that is. I used to know what well, my doctor explained it to me, but for especially if you're a woman in your 20s or so, it's that much more likely that you will lose your period or it'll be so light it's it's a negligible impact. Uh, and another thing about the hormonal IUD is that, like Heather said, it's localized. Mm -hmm. So unlike the birth control pill, which you ingest and then it circulates that hormone throughout your body, uh, the IUD, whereas is just in your uterus. So it's, again, it's a time controlled release of that hormone over the five to 10 years. They're all approved for different amounts of time. The copper one is 10 years. The marina is five, although it's been approved for seven in Europe. It's five in the U.S. And the Skyla and Kylana are also five to seven year approvals. Um, so you just leave it in there and it releases the hormone gradually just in your uterus. Again, makes your uterus hostile to sperm, which we love. We love a hostile <laughs> uterus. Um, and, uh, and it is primarily changing the hormone, hormonal balance in your uterus. But the other nice thing, if you have like high blood pressure, which is in my family, uh, or if you have other negative side effects to specifically estrogen in taking the pill, uh, IUDs are just progesterone. So that's the other main difference is that if you have a negative reaction to estrogen, which also is the one of the two that they think has the stronger impact on like the mood swings and mood imbalances, uh, depression, all of those. It's linked to um, hormonal migraines a lot as well. So yes. a lot of women who are susceptible to hormonal migraines, it's a real issue taking estrogen. So the IUD is a good alternative for that, considering it's just yes. progesterone. So if your body doesn't like estrogen, again, hormonal IUD, even though it's still hormonal, could be a good good option for you. So that's uh, excellent. That's the IUD. Yeah. And the IUD is the most effective yes. form of contraception that we have. It's, depending on which one you use, it's 99 
point, I don't know, let's call it 0.7 plus percent effective. Yeah. Whereas your, your birth control pills are sitting somewhere around 93%, depending on how effectively you are at taking it on time, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, condoms are about 90% when used correctly. Mm-hmm. Love a disclaimer. Whereas the IUD, there is no real when used correctly. If it's inserted properly and it's in the right location, you just leave it there for the better part of a decade and you won't get pregnant. <laughs> mm-hmm. I pulled up, I checked the stat on efficacy here. I've got it from yeah. Yeah. the oh, you got John it? Hopkins Manual of Gynecology oh, and hit Obstetrics. Uh, so hit us with the, stat. the hormonal uh, IUD is 99.8% effective and Woo! the copper is 992 So as you say. Nice. Definitely okay. the most effective of the options there. Which, uh, you know, in the world, well, maybe not the world we live in, but the American world I'm living in, mm-hmm. it's peachy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> My goodness. Texas. Yeah. Fuck Texas, man. Not <laughs> fuck Texas. Fuck Texas lawmakers. <sighs> truly. Yeah. Truly, honestly, and truly. Um, um, anyway, pivoting away from that, we'll do an abortion episode someday. We shall. And uh, there will be a lot of female rage up in here. (laughs) Yep. We'll get there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did some fun reading (laughs) this week and found out some fun facts about the history of the IUD. Do you want to hear about it? Oh, let's do it. I actually don't know anything about this. Yeah, this is all news to me. So as someone who has never had an IUD, um, I didn't know a whole lot about it, uh, you know, beyond what we've just discussed now. But I did some fun (laughs) reading. (laughs) I love it when Heather reads things because it means I'm going to (laughs) learn. Cool. Um, So the first attempt at making an IUD uh, was in 1929. Oh. Very early. Um, That's, wow. And the first attempt they made it in a ring shape. So they decided to make it a ring. I do not know how they got that through the cervix. Yeah, that, mm. Do not know. Because really it's kind of like a um, picture, like a ship in a bottle kind of thing. They insert it as like a, a singular tiny like what I'm picturing like maybe like an inch or so tall like kind of almost like a q-tip <laughs> maybe a little thinner mm-hmm. they slide it up and then these two arms expand into a t at the top of your uterus but that happens after it's inside the uterus so in terms of getting it through the cervix like Heather was saying it's just a it's a small opening in your cervix it's not meant to let a whole lot through and it just kind of slides up in there yep not painlessly usually but slides up in there so the ring how did they um yeah there weren't many details on the insertion mystery to me it probably hurt Mm. (laughs) a Mm. lot Mm -hmm. yeah that's my guess um but these are my fun facts from this tidbit um of the story is uh so it was developed by a a german physician called ernst grafenberg uh after whom the g-spot is named no way yep what a dude. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. We're going to – we got to put this on the uh, on the Insta. There's this comedian named Matthew Broussard who I, I really like, but his mom's a gynecologist, and he has all of these bits about how, like, so many names of female reproductive organs are named after male scientists and male doctors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, I didn't know it was the same dude. No yeah. way. Yeah, no. Yeah. He was busy. Good to know they found the G-spot back in 1929. <laughs> well, in theory, yeah. in practice, still yeah. trying, I guess, <laughs> gents. Um, but 
unfortunately, uh, it, his work was sort of hidden away and suppressed by the Nazi regime because the device was considered a threat to Aryan women. Yeah, you wanted that those Hitler youths to reproduce. God, yeah, let's just add that to the pile of fucked up Nazi eugenics practices. Yes, definitely. Gosh. Uh, but yeah, the T-shaped one that you just described perfectly uh, emerged in the 1960s. Yeah. Hmm. So, so it's quite a while back. I was surprised to read that it was it was this early on. Huh. Yeah, me too. And they um, they developed the T once they realized that that would be a more appropriate shape to fit into the shape of the uterus. So the uterus mm-hmm. is kind of a uh, inverted pair equilateral towards isosceles triangle. <laughs> this shows this is everything you need to know about Heather and I because Heather picked a very specific geometric figure and I was like I'm going to say a fruit. <laughs> How about some produce? Yeah, it's like an upside down pear and Heather's like it's an inverted <laughs> isosceles triangle. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I think I do. It's in there. Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> I knew what that was at some point, but that's hysterical. Oh my god! It is though, yeah. Yeah, it is. So the the T fits much better than a than a circle. Yeah, I've got some pictures coming up actually that I want to show you because I learned something else this week. Oh, that was sweet, super interesting. Show me. I found out this week that not all uteruses are shaped that way. I saw you put that in the. Uh, I put some in the pictures notes. in our notes. So and. Uh, fucking wild i know and this is super relevant so it says i mean the statistic is that three percent of women are born it says with a defect in the size shape or structure of their uterus i don't really love the term defect and i feel like if it's three percent of women let's just say diversity of uteruses yeah that's that's, fair that's quite a lot um but the really the the reason this came to my attention is i was listening to the story of a girl who got an iud inserted uh, and she discovered after having some trouble with its placement that she has something called a bicornuate uterus, which is otherwise known as a heart-shaped uterus. Wow. And if you can see in my lovely set of pictures... Which we'll put on the gram. Um, I'd heard of a T-shaped uterus. I'd heard of, I'd mm-hmm. heard of that before. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you can imagine those two longer extended walls uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. sort of come together and meet more closely in the middle and it forms more of a T-shape. But there's, um, yeah, there's a variety of other shapes that you can get. The heart-shaped one, essentially that upper wall, uh, is somewhat depreciated and comes down into the centre. Yeah. And then it creates almost two channels rather than having just a centre. That's wild. Cup shape, yeah. Um, so, th- but the point, the point is, is that she, uh, she could still have an IUD inserted, but she subsequently found out that the effectiveness rate for, of an IUD for someone with a heart-shaped uterus is 85%, not... Oh, that's different. Yeah, not 99 plus. And Those are not the same. <laughs> predictably, she was, she was just not informed of that at all. Also, looking at all these different ones, a lot of them just logistically, yeah. Mm. How would you even... How would you get an IUD in there? Yeah, right? What is... Like, I'm looking at this class three... The T-shaped one worries me. And the yeah, the different... T-shaped one worries me. The one that's actually just like, it looks like two separate smaller uterine? Yep. Uterine? Uteri? Uteruses? Yep. Yeah. And they don't test you for this before they put it in? Like three in a hundred women have something like this? and vast majority of women who, who are uteri diverse um, do not know. And 3% is quite hefty. Yeah. I mean, in the US, that's like millions and millions of women. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's as of most... Medical things, I'm sure it's a spectrum thing. You know, you mm-hmm. might not have 
you know, you might not have the textbook example. It might be somewhat on a spectrum from the most standard shaped mm-hmm. uterus towards any one of these variations. But I mean, I'd, I'd like to know what shape my uterus is. I kind of want to ask now. Like, I'm almost wondering if like that's why I had the problems I had that we'll get to. Yeah. Um, yeah. No one, no, no one thought to look at the shape of no. the inside of my uterus. No, I didn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. In general, though, I can imagine the mm-hmm. T-shape fitting mm-hmm. a whole lot better than a circle and these diagrams, all of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was the point at which they also worked out that copper could act as a spermicide. Oh, cool. And so that was the first copper T-shaped uh, nice. IUD. It was the 1960s in America. Yeah. That makes sense. Because I yes. remember they were around. My mom had a lot of actually horror stories about them because when they initially came out in the States, mm-hmm. um, a lot of, if you talk to it, like if you're parents specifically your your mothers are of that sort of boomer generation mm-hmm. or maybe a little bit younger did not go well really? there's like every every mother i've talked to about my iud yeah has like a viscerally negative reaction ah and i guess that's because a lot of the side effects were a lot worse and a lot more prevalent is like that- a perforated uterus and all of that was just yeah. it was more common and is that because of the the dalkin shield have you heard about this i don't know if that's why. Yes. But it's, I mean, it's just another thing, I guess, that would build into the the sort of collective conventional wisdom around why IUDs would be bad. Exactly. Do you want to talk a bit about that? So, yeah, it was a new form of IUD that was developed in the 1970s, but there was a major design flaw. Essentially, the issue was that the strings that attached to the bottom of the device, which necessary for the removal later. They were made out of a, a, a porous material which bacteria could track upwards within. So it meant that a lot of people with these this type of IUD got really bad infections all the way towards sepsis and it led to, in the most severe cases, uh, infertility and there were a few deaths as well. And it, this was not in a small percentage of women, this was in... Yeah a non-negligible percentage of women with this type of IUD. So I think it, and that definitely tarnished, I think, the reputation of IUDs in general. So I'm not surprised Mm -hmm. that um, our mum's generation have, maybe have this hesitancy, perhaps related to this particular, this particular model. But it was, it was recalled quite quickly. It was only on the market for a few years, but there was 300,000 claims made in a class action lawsuit. Um, and I thought you would be really interested in the medical outcomes of this as well, because um, yeah, apparently largely due to this particular case, so it was in 1976, that prompted the FDA to actually mandate for the first time testing and approval for medical devices that are inserted in vivo. I mean, good. We, we weren't doing that already, but... Yep, that's okay. concerning that that was not a requirement uh, before. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I guess we weren't we weren't regulating a lot. In the 70s, or by the 70s, that we should have been. Um, Yeah, I think that reaction is really understandable and something that I struggle with, at least here. And I mean, we've had off-the-pod conversations about, like, anti-vaxxers and that. And I think it's really hard as a woman when you're talking about women's reproductive health and the tech and medical advancements around that to walk this line between wanting to trust the scientific process and trust its outcomes... and take advantage, frankly, of all the ways in which they can benefit your life in very tangible ways, Uh, but at the same time, bearing in mind that the well-being of women hasn't 
always been prioritized in the way it should be and it hasn't always been treated as seriously as it should be and that to a degree you kind of do have to almost play goalie like you you have to referee that yourself to a degree that's much greater than in a lot of other areas of science and medicine yeah in a way that does put put that burden on the individual consumer or the individual individual patient excuse me in a, in a way that breeds a kind of skepticism that in a lot of other areas of science, I at least would be quite dismissive of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's a weird line to walk. It feels really uncomfy. Yeah, no, it's I have to say. Point. Definitely, completely agree. Generally, very high trust in scientific process. But when it comes to women's health issues, there is a skepticism about whether there has been sufficient duty of care. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult one. Okay. Um, okay. Um, One last thing that I read about the history that I just wanted to mention because I was like, my word, is this for real? Um, what, tell me. So, did you know that IUDs were a big part of enacting China's one-child policy? No way. So, from 1980 to 2014, very recent, 324 million women uh, in China were inserted with IUDs. I would use the term forcibly, but by forcibly, I mean in the sense that so women, women who refused to have the IUDs inserted would lose government employment uh, and their children would no longer have access to public schools. Jesus. So. Forcibly. Let's say forcibly. Yeah, that's coercion. That's not, that's not okay. Yeah, but this bit is the bit that's really messed up. So the IUDs uh, were inserted in a way, so they, they were modified such that they couldn't be removed in a doctor's office. Um, they could only oh. be removed surgically. <gasps> so they were designed such that they would they would be inserted and they'd be left in forever and always. Yes. <laughs> and so it was made from a stainless steel ring, apparently. So again, I don't really know how that, that goes functionally. Oh, God. Yeah, insane. So when they then switched to the two-child policy, you could then apply to the government to have permission to have the IUD removed. Um, but it was at the discretion of the government, they considered women who they deemed to be allowed to have a second child, um, and then they could have their surgery covered to have it removed. But everyone else just didn't have access or had to would have to pay excessive amounts. God. Nuts. And I think something we're not quite going to tread into, but just in terms of how our discussion of women's pain and women's health and women's reproductive rights, access, care, etc., overlaps with a lot of larger socioeconomic discussions. I mean, in the U.S., there's instances of forced IUD insertions in women who were seeking different sources of government aid uh, in the mid to late 90s. And this is such a larger conversation. I really, I don't want to just take a snippet of it, but I just think it's important to flag that part of the problem with women's reproductive health and how women's pain and all of these things are treated in medicine is that it's just one offshoot of the larger conversation around female autonomy and female agency in these kinds of choices and how they are co-opted so often, whether it's, you know, Nazi Germany and you're requiring women to have children or making it very hard for women not to have children for the sake of furthering a political social goal or whether it's you're prohibiting women from having children for the sake of furthering a different goal. The fact that that burden always falls on the women, and then at the same time, even in societies or 
at the same time in societies that also have these policies, you likewise have a complete lack of access and information sharing and research and da 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 da, da so on and so forth for getting women the kind of care and help that they need to be healthy and not in pain and make these decisions with sound informed consent. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the time when you have like certain feminist conversations or conversations around repro and things like that, a typical jab is, is like calling someone political is like an insult. Like, oh, why do you have to make this so political? Or like, you know, why do you think like everyone hates women or like society's out to get you? And it's, it's like, no one's trying to do that, or at least we're certainly not trying to do that. And I don't think most people who talk about these issues are in any way trying to do that. It's just you have to recognize that the ability to reproduce people with uteruses, are their bodies are politicized mm-hmm. without their consent or honestly without their interest. Like <laughs> women don't want to walk through the world uh, or uterus carrying people don't want to walk through the world with inherently politicized bodies. That's not our goal. It's not fun. You know, I would love to not anxiously refresh my Twitter feed at midnight to find out whether or not one of the 50 U.S. states and now, you know, working its way up to into the 10 plus U.S. states uh, have passed a law that's just going to result in a fuck ton of women dying for needless reasons. Like, I don't want to spend my time doing that. I don't want to spend my time being upset about that. <laughs> that's not that's not for our sake, but when you walk around every day with a uterus, there are institutions that think they get to take a vested stake in what you do with it. Yep. Yep. And it sucks. <laughs> yep. That's my rant. My my big issue that's fairly aligned with this is, so as well as the politicization of it, it's the almost the mechanization of it that I take issue with. Yeah. Yeah, as viewing women's reproductive anatomy as this mechanical system um, that other people have the right to re-engineer. Often I think, ah, this bothers me so much. It's just that sense that it's something that you can re-engineer and often in very crude ways. I feel Mm -hmm, like you look at a lot mm -hmm. of these devices and it is quite a crude mechanical concept of of re-engineering the system. Yeah. I think women's bodies should never be treated like a machine. (laughs) No. Yes. And I think when they are, and then unsurprisingly, this results in pain, discomfort, or illness, a whole host of issues, that in combination with dismissal of women's complaints of pain, that as a pairing is just horrifyingly dangerous. Absolutely. Well, and it's the idea that when when one of these institutions wants to engineer women's reproductive capabilities en masse, Mm -hmm. the women's rights are are completely skirted in that. Like, there is no conversation, almost, around that impact. But when an individual woman wants to use a much less invasive, um, much less problematic, if problematic at all, entirely self-elected use of, of some scientific method to achieve a similar goal for her own sake, then it's also problematized mm-hmm. by people who didn't take issue with it when when the larger institution was doing it. Like a lot of Republican administrations forced inserted IUDs. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but but when an individual woman wants to like to do that for a lot of the same reasons, which is that frankly having kids is fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. 
then it's a political issue. Yep. That the same people who supported those Republican, excuse me, administrations, like, cannot cope with. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you, you can't have both. Those, those can't both be true at the same time. And more than anything, you cannot ignore the fact that the lack of individual autonomy is, is a decisive difference between those two scenarios. And it can't be the only real situation, because I'm trying to think of, like, what other instances of individual autonomy, like, these are the same people protesting fucking mask wearing as mm-hmm. oppression. You cannot have that high a standard for individual autonomy and then deny the vitality of its existence in this one instance. It's an excellent point. Logic. It doesn't square. Like, you can't do it. Not just, like, you shouldn't do it. This isn't, this isn't the disagreement of, like, some moral prerogative like it's not like oh you're free to have your beliefs and i'm free to have mine like you actually if you have the beliefs you say you have you just can't cannot get to that conclusion it can't be done yep very good point but here we are (laughs) today's topic iud's um (laughs) um chris you have a very interesting experience uh yes well we've come full circle Mm -hmm. i guess hey because i got my iud put in at the end of august of 2020 and uh, I got it out, guys. Big life update. I got my IUD out in the middle of July. So, again, for those of you who are new and maybe haven't listened to our first episode where I went through my symptoms up to that point, which was in, I think we started recording in February, maybe March. Um, so up to that point, I, uh, I'd gotten an IUD. They say you'll have cramps for three to six months. I had cramps. They were getting better. And then all of a sudden, the end of October, they started getting really, really, really bad. Like a different kind of pain, different caliber of pain, etc. So I went back to the doctor and I was like, hey, this hurts a lot. And she was like, you know, it could just be the IUD. So if it's still bothering you in wintertime, let me know. Okay, fine. I come back in December and I'm like, hey doc, this still really, really friggin' hurts. And it's more and more often and it hurts more and more. And it's to the point where I'm taking like four Advil and I still can't like move. And she was like, huh, well, that's a problem. And thank God. I love it when women believe women uh, or people believe women, but it's just, I think it's usually women (laughs) in this case that are believing the women. She was like, yeah, that's a problem. Let's get you an ultrasound. She's Mm -hmm. like, the IUD could be crooked. And at this point they were thinking it was the IUD causing the problem. She's like, it could be like sticking you in part of your uterus. It could be crooked. It could be this. It could be that. It could have fallen, whatever. Quick info on that. Oh yeah. So yeah, it is a known thing that IUDs can travel. (laughs) I quite like that term. It reminded me of when we spoke about the wandering womb. <laughs> Remember the wandering womb from Hysteria? I know. That's literally what I thought of. The one, the wandering womb. Uh, the womb stays put, but the IUD might not. Yes, correct. So true, real science. <laughs> um, uterus stays in place, but the yeah, the IUD may not. <laughs> in case anyone was confused. With the IUD potentially traveling and moving, uh, it can also result in a perforated uterus which can be extremely, mm-hmm. extremely painful. Yeah, the uter- it can also, uh, the uterus can also expel the IUD. So your body can just outright reject it, say, nah, I don't want this foreign object, uh, and, yes, try, and try to get rid of it. <laughs> and given the explanation of how the, the arms are raised, um, that your body trying to mm. navigate the <laughs> exit point <laughs> through this tiny hole of the cervix, mm, a little tricky. Uh, without without eyes so that can be very uh, problematic to say the least it's not fun well and it's funny it's funny you should say that 
so for those of you who have been tracking with us for a while, you know that I, I got this ultrasound and they were like, oh, you have a cyst. We're going to take it out. Cyst named Kevin. So I have the surgery and I've waited to update this because I, I didn't want to update it prematurely because I felt really bad basically coming out and being like, oh, I have endometriosis because that was the presumptive diagnosis. Again, when they diagnose you with endo, they're like, we won't know until we do an operation, but, um, mm-hmm. but that's what all of your symptoms sound like. Um, and especially with my history of very painful, very severe period symptoms, they were like, this absolutely makes sense. So they go to do surgery to take out the cyst that they saw in the ultrasound and presumably some uh, scar tissue from endometriosis, and they find jack. They find absolutely nothing. And the cyst, it turns out, because there was like some excess fluid or whatever it is around uh, my ovary, there are different kinds of cysts. Some of them, and I won't get into too much about it, but some of them are temporary. They burst, and it's sometimes excruciatingly painful, and you have to go to the hospital. And sometimes it's it's not excruciatingly painful, but they burst and go away. And then other kinds, which are the endometrioma, which is what they thought I had, um, don't burst and go away because they're actually filled with solid material and those you have to get surgically removed. So they don't find a cyst and they also don't find endometriosis. And then three days after my surgery, uh, the pain comes back and it's horrible. It's some of the worst I've ever had actually. So I go back to the doctor for my post-op a month later and he spends all this time, this doctor, which Heather's heard so much about, God, terrible, like literal archetype of minimization of female pain. He was like this very arrogant, quippish doctor. He kept calling me crampy. Like when I described my symptoms, he'd be like, so you've been a little crampy. And I'm like, I'm literally like in tears at five o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But sure, we can say I'm crampy. Did I tell you about, did I tell you about that uh, thing that I read about this woman? She's an artist who made a device that simulated terrible menstrual pain yes. and cramping you uh, attach electrodes can, can we can we practice on this doctor I would love to <laughs> ask him if he's a little crampy <laughs> I also actually oh we should share this too BuzzFeed there's this group called the Try Guys which are just like these four guys who have um they don't work for BuzzFeed anymore but they also did a simulator where like they put these electrodes on your abdomen and simulate childbirth mm. oh. um and I really I just think it should be a required Ooh. part of health class like men generally should have to go through this just so they have like an iota of understanding of what women are talking about when we describe these things. But yeah, no, mm-hmm. he should be a prime contender because, I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's an endocrinologist. Like, all he does is work on the women, women's reproductive system and just the least empathetic mm-hmm. person I've ever met in my life. So he kept calling me crampy. Um, and he spent this hour showing me photos of the inside of my abdominal cavity, showing me all of my pristine organs and how there's nothing wrong with them. And then was like, okay, so yeah, so I don't know um, if, you know, if you want to come back in, in like six months. And I was like, um, excuse me, <laughs> I am still in pain. Like, and you know this because you spent an hour telling me that your surgery that you did didn't fix me. Mm. So the problem here is not solved and I don't have six more months to figure this out. And so I essentially end up suggesting that maybe it was the IUD, which was the initial mm-hmm. theory without the cyst. But I didn't want to switch immediately back to birth control because, again, I have really severe hormonal swings and I didn't want to be a mess while studying for the bar exam because this is now May. So I'm about to graduate from law school and start studying for the bar. So I essentially propose that I stay on the pill while having the IUD in for a couple months and then take the IUD out so there's not that dramatic dip where there's nothing and I have terrible periods and faint and shit while I'm studying for the bar. And he's like, huh, yeah, I think you could do that. 
And I was like, you think? Like, can I take the pill while having the IUD? And he was like, ah. And he literally, he made this noise while he was thinking. He was like, "Mm, yeah, I think so. Let me Google that for you. <laughs> you are an endocrinologist at the wow. University of Pennsylvania Medicine. Wow. What do you mean you think so? Wow. Like, I just, anyway. Um, so I, I did, um, you know, mm-hmm. self-guided yeah. little tour. That, I that did that. That reminds me of exactly the situation where when I'd had all of the horrific pill side yeah. effects that I'd had and I knew I needed to get off of my current pill but was scared of re- losing the rest of my hair. And I asked so many people, like, can I wean myself off the pill? Can I reduce my, can I cut, literally physically cut my pill in half and start taking half of it a day and then start taking a third of it a day and then start taking a quarter of it a day and do this gradually? And well, how does that work? Will that mean that I don't have the sharp hormonal shift that triggered uh, my hair to switch into a dormant and shedding mode or what are my other options and just no one knew no mm-hmm. one knew if that's a thing you could do mm-hmm. so I just went for it <laughs> and it's like and everyone talks about how like oh it's trial and error like it's so specific to the person and like sure but if you have hundreds of I mean if you have billions really of women on birth control you have you should know mm-hmm. but no did not know and it turns out also this is a knowable thing I have since had other doctors, unsurprisingly, I guess, female doctors, explain to me why that is okay and that you shouldn't do it for a long time, but for this amount of time, yeah. it's fine. And da, da, da. Okay. There were answers, just to be clear. This isn't like mm-hmm. science failed. Like, this man just did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, fine. That's what I did. And then in July, beginning of July, I got the IUD out. And when I got the IUD out, the RN, who was this like 30-something-year-old woman who was doing that procedure because of course like nothing here could be easy you're supposed to just be able to go to the doctors and they can like use a little duck claw thing and go up and grab the strings and pull it out (laughs) of course the strings had receded (laughs) because why would literally anything about this process be easy so I ended up having to go in for like a it's not a procedure they just had like more tools that they use to go further into your cervix or whatever (laughs) to remove it and beforehand because I had to go into someone I hadn't seen before to do this um, I was giving her the backdrop and she gave me more answers in that 20 minutes than I've gotten literally all year of doing this. And it turns out, uh, drum roll please, the answer to my year of crippling pain is that my body was in fact rejecting the IUD. Mm. That was the answer. And guys, when they say rejecting an IUD, it varies person to person how extreme this is. But what my uterus was doing, the pain that I was having were contractions. Wow. Because my body was trying to deliver the IUD. <laughs> oh my God. My, my body had decided that it wanted this thing out. And what does a uterus do when there's something in it that needs to come out? Um, it like snake digests whatever's in it to wow. try to force it out of your vaginal oh canal. And uh, that's what we were doing. My, my body was giving birth to the IUD. Um, effectively. So I'm not looking forward to childbirth now because that was horrendous. Um, but it's funny actually, because I was watching Friends, the episode when Phoebe gives birth. And I think I had like some weird out of body experience where I was like, wait a minute. Because the pain, it would, it was so weird. It would like come and go in waves. 
and it would be like farther apart and then it would get closer together and then it eventually would subside but just the fact that it would go from like stabbing to just like normal cramping and then it would stab and like I'd have to breathe really Mm -hmm. weird and I'd have to sit a certain way and Mm -hmm. just as I was watching her go through this scene of giving birth to triplets I was like why can't I empathize with this wow but it um it was wild yeah so that's oh, what that's that was incredible that's i spent a year having contractions yeah and no one knew oh the thing that just is infuriating chris is that you suggested this on day one my first appointment i remember on the phone to me yeah. um when you said that you'd been to that appointment the one before they suggested that you had endometriosis yeah um you went to them thinking, is this, is, is my IUD just lodged? Is it in, has it moved into a difficult position? Is my body rejecting it? So that was flagged at step yeah. one and confirmed at step 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. cool. Mm-mm. That's pathetic. Mm-mm. And frankly, wow. it's like people's, because none of the statistics here add up also. And we can get into this in a bit more detail, but basically about 20% of women, they say, have more severe symptoms than, you know, oh, it's a painless insertion or it's a mildly uncomfortable insertion. And then you have some cramps for two weeks and then like lesser cramping, but still cramping for three to six months. Like that's the the spiel that you're given. And they say about 20% of women have not that, have something more severe than that. To the point where like they say like, and sometimes your body rejects the IUD, but they leave it at that. They don't tell you what those symptoms feel like. And when you're in the moment, you just end up thinking that something else actually has to be wrong with you because if if that happened to enough women, they'd make a bigger deal about it. If, if rejecting the IUD means your uterus is having contractions trying to force it out of your body, you know, surely a bigger deal would be made of that or you'd be given a bit more information about what to expect there, but you're just not. Yep. And no, it never would have occurred to me that that was the degree of pain that I was I was gambling on in getting this. So unfortunately, we need to cut things there for today. But don't worry, next time we'll be bringing you a bunch more stories um, of our friends' experiences with IUDs. That is the good, the bad, and the ugly. So stay tuned for this. And until next time, this has been Chris and Heather. And this is the Overreacting Podcast.